The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. For those of you that are uh, here for the first time today, we want to welcome you and uh, let you know that my name is Mick Nelson. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Broadway Church. And I um, also want to say hello to our class at Port Coquitlam. So hello to everyone over there and, and uh, Poco. And uh, we're in the middle of a verse-by-verse walkthrough, the book of the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. And uh, we're in week chapter 9, and we're just getting to the end of chapter 3. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the last of the seven churches that are introduced in chapters 2 and 3 of the book. When I was growing up, there were two of the churches that used to get a whole lot of preaching time. The first one was... Ephesians, um, lots of sermons on what it means to lose your first love. But the really scary sermons were on today's subject, the church in Laodicea. I heard a lot of really challenging sermons that flew out of what we're going about to talk about today. And so uh, I'm just going to read uh, the passage at the end of Revelation chapter 3, and we'll hear a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of launch right into our study this morning. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. Would you were either cold or hot? So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sit down on my father's throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our God and Father, we just thank you for this day that we have together to just kind of stop at the end of a busy week and just kind of spend some time with your word. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be here this morning. Uh, to speak to our hearts and to help us understand this revelation. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in every age and in every place, the Church of Jesus Christ has always faced the same challenge. And that challenge is simply to be the body of Christ, loyal to Jesus and faithful to its identity and calling usually in the midst of a secular culture that wants to press the church into its own mold. Every age of church history has its blind spots, some generations more than others, and each generation of the church has its own blind spots peculiar to the age in which it exists. These blind spots come from giving way to the unrelenting pressure of the surrounding culture. Sometimes these blind spots come from open accommodation to the world around. Sometimes the blind spots occur whenever biblical truth is replaced by the opinions and views of the culture in which the church exists. 
Now, the effectiveness of the church and its witness and its ministry around the world is directly tied to the degree to which these blind spots prevent it from doing the work that it actually should be doing. And whenever the church yields to the values and priorities of the surrounding culture, it pays a price in terms of its ability to do what God has called it to do. And so only when the church sticks to being the church under the lordship of Jesus Christ does it make a redemptive difference in the world and in the lives of men and women. It draws people to its Lord only when it refuses to fall in step with the prevailing culture. It makes a difference in the world only when it is alive with the vitality of wholehearted commitment to Christ, his mission, the scriptures, and to the redeemed community. When you are a congregation in an affluent, upscale town like Laodicea, sometimes it is a real challenge just to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been studying these messages to each church, the seven churches of Revelation, we've had that familiar pattern echoing throughout each study. Every letter to every church begins with a description of the character of Christ, usually drawn from um, hints that we received in chapter one of Revelation. And then there's a description of what Christ knows about each church with a word of commendation for their strengths and a word of rebuke for the sins of commission or omission in each congregation. There is a call to repentance with a warning of consequences if they fail to repent. And then finally, there's a description of the promise reward for faithfulness and overcoming, which usually looks ahead to the end of the book of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And so we have these churches, and uh, sometimes, you know, people look at chapters two and three and they say, well, let's just kind of jump from chapter one to chapter four and get into the good stuff. But it's really important to understand that the book of Revelation was written to these seven congregations. That's the context. That was the reason John was writing. And so everything that happens from chapter four onwards has these seven churches in mind. It's these people to whom John wants to peel back the curtain and let them understand what is going on in the spiritual realm so that they will be sustained in the here and now. And so let's talk a little bit about the historical context of Laodicea because what Jesus has to say to this church is very much tied into the kind of city that it was. Laodicea was the wealthiest city in Phrygia during Roman times. It was a center of taxation and uh, it was known for its banking establishment. It was like the Zurich of its day. It was famous in the textile industry. Uh, it was home to the manufacture of an exquisite wool made from a breed of black sheep. And it was home to a famous medical school that specialized in an ointment for weak and ailing eyes that was actually exported throughout the world. And it was a city known for a sort of self-sufficiency and resourcefulness. When Laodicea was rocked by an earthquake about 30 years before John wrote this letter, uh, it refused to be declared a disaster area, what today we would call a disaster area. Uh, without any outward help, the citizens kind of rebuilt the city uh, out of their own resources. It was located on a major highway in the region, the leading city of a tri-city region that included Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. And so, in a nutshell, it was famous for four things. And if you have your outline in front of you, you can kind of jot this in. Number one, it was known for lousy water. 
Has anybody lived in a town known for lousy water? Anyone? I have. I have lived in a town where the water was just abysmal, either because of sulfur content or it was hard water or whatever it is. When you don't have good water, you really appreciate the fact that um, when water is bad, it is really a nightmare for the people that live there. And uh, just because of the nature of its geography, um, Laodicea had lousy waters. It was located between a source of water, cold water, and Colossae, and hot springs in Hierapolis. But by the time the water arrived in Laodicea via the aqueduct, it was lukewarm, okay? Keep that in mind, okay? Echo here is gonna come back. We'll come back to that. Uh, number two, wealth. It was the Switzerland of the region, famous for its many banks, as I already mentioned. Um, medicine goes in that next blank, especially that healing salve to soothe and heal eye diseases. And then clothing, it produced that highly sought after, usually black wool from local sheep. And so in every uh, way of thinking of it, Laodicea was kind of a world-class city. And its citizens kind of thought they had it all. And they did have a lot going for them. They had material wealth and bustling industry. There was outward luxury. There was physical health. Laodicea was a success story by all outward appearances. And surrounded by growth and activity and great wealth and vision, in the middle of this city was a Christian church, a church of God's people. And it's very interesting to note that even though we have been called to be the church of God in the world, but not of the world, we always have to kind of be aware of the impact the surrounding culture has on the way we think about things and the way we live every day. Uh, the culture is preaching all of the time. And unless we are really faithful to our commitment to Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word, sometimes we can buy into some of the prevailing stories and narratives that culture provides. And it sounds like this was beginning to happen at the church in Laodicea. So here is the specific message to this church. And it begins, as these letters do, with a description of the character of Jesus Christ. And so to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Amen is a Hebrew word meaning uh, very true, certain. And so Jesus Christ is called the Amen, a title reserved for God in Isaiah 65, uh, 16. And so Christ is shown as the solid foundation. That's what goes in the blank, the solid foundation of life. Jesus is the affirmation of God's truth. He's the Amen. He's the period at the end of the sentence. He sums up what it's all about. He is the amen. So that's one of the things that Jesus describes himself as, is the amen. Secondly, he describes himself as the faithful and true witness. And it builds on this quality. The word for true is not the word in contrast to false, but the word in contrast to counterfeit. Okay, there's a difference. So it's not true with regards to false, it's true with regards to counterfeit. It is the word for genuine or authentic. Christ is shown as the genuine reflection and representation of God's nature. He clearly sees things for how they are and for what they are, and he calls it as he sees it. He's the faithful and true witness. And then finally, he's the ruler of God's creation. The word translated ruler is arche here, and it's also translated as beginning. 
It's the word for starting point or the source, that which has priority over the rest. See Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Christ is shown here has the source and the pattern of God's creation, the origin and sustainer of all that is. And so Jesus begins this letter to the church in Laodicea by giving him a reminder of just who it is that's addressing them, who it is that has the authority to speak to their particular context. And so let's jump into that. As Jesus is looking with an unbiased eye at this particular congregation in Laodicea, what is it that he sees? What is it that he knows? Has the faithful and true witness, what is it that he gets that maybe nobody else gets as Lord of this church? Well, first of all, Christ has no words of commendation for this church. And that's kind of arresting, because usually if you've got bad news to deliver, you usually start with the good news, right? You want to kind of, if there's anything good, you want to bring that up first. But in this particular church, there is no good things that Jesus picks up on. Maybe that's why whenever I knew that they were preaching on the church in Laodicea, it always made me a little bit nervous because I know there's going to be some uh, tough preaching here when we're coming to this particular church. And maybe because in some ways, uh, in our culture, in our affluent Western uh, society, the church of Laodicea has some, you know, nervous echoes with what we actually see going on in our world. Maybe that's why. But I always used to remember that when it came to Laodicea, I always kind of fastened my seatbelt when I was in the pew and got ready for a really pointed sermon. So this is what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, and you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, which is an interesting comment. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich and have acquired wealth and don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Their response to Jesus Christ, who has just been declared the solid foundation of reality, the genuine representative of God's nature, the source and pattern of God's creation, is in one author's words, ho-hum, mild approval, that's what goes in the blank. Yeah, been there, done that. Yeah, the Jesus thing, good. Yeah, no problem. So kind of to outward appearances, they kind of paid tribute to Jesus with their mouth, but their heart was in an entirely different place, and Jesus kind of saw which way their heart was leaning. Number two, Christ uses famous elements of their experience in their city to communicate truth. Isn't it interesting? He picks up on words like, you are lukewarm. You are wealthy, but you're blind. Uh, you're naked uh, in terms of your spirituality. You do not realize, number three, that viewed from their perspective, they have everything, but viewed from heaven's perspective, as the veil is pulled back, they have nothing, and they are oblivious to the reality. And this is the scary part. As we were kind of doing the reveal study about three or four years ago, one of the groups of people that they recognized as uh, a part of our churches across North America was a group of people who really liked 
sort of being a part of the church because of the fellowship and various things that it offered, but they were not prepared to make a commitment to Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. And what the reveal study revealed was that the longer these people stay in church enjoying the company, but not the company of Jesus Christ, the harder it is to reach them with saving faith, the harder it is to win them to Jesus Christ. I sort of get the impression that a little bit of this was going on in the church of Laodicea. In fact, some commentators have even gone so far as to say that they had bought into the concept of religion, but they really hadn't exercised saving faith. And that was a part of the problem that they were facing. They didn't have the life that was life indeed. And so they were oblivious to the reality, and that was the scary part of it. They thought they were doing just great. I mean, life was great. Everything was turning up as well as it could possibly turn up. I mean, if there's food on the table and you've got clothes on your backs and you've got more than enough money to get by and you're relatively healthy, sometimes you can kind of think, you know, I'm just doing fine without Jesus. But Jesus wants to remind this church of where its true dependence needs to lie. And so wealth distinguished this congregation, probably financial as well as with influence in the community. But their external wealth seemed to have blinded them to the spiritual reality of their lives. They had material prosperity, but a bankruptcy in their souls. They practiced respectable morality, but held kind of a passionless devotion to Jesus Christ. And so outwardly they were a model of religion, but inwardly they were a picture of spiritual mediocrity. They were lukewarm. Man, you know, call me hot or cold, but don't call me mediocre. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, like I would sooner be passionate about something than sort of passionless. The Christ, uh, term Christ uses here, lukewarmness, is really a perilous condition. And that's why he's bringing it to their attention. Now think about this for a second. What is a cold person? Okay, let's just kind of fill out the personality profile of somebody that's cold spiritually. What can you tell me about them? Pardon me? Not interested? Okay, they've made a decision, right? And they've made the decision to kind of go their own way, not Christ's way. What else about a cold person? They're distant? Rude? They might be rude. I, I've seen some cold people who are pretty polite, but they could be rude, absolutely. They're isolated? Potentially egoistic because self, you're reliant on yourself. If you don't have Jesus Christ at the center, who's at the center? Well, it's going to be yourself or some other influence. But when a person is cold, they have made a certain decision. Uh, their heart is hard. They can be rebellious. But the thing I appreciate about people who are cold is that they usually make no pretense of religion and they offer no lip service. They are what they are. A cold heart lives up to its profession. I will do it my way. Okay, they make no excuses for that. You kind of know where they are. They've kind of put their commitment on display. Now, what does a hot person look like, do you think, in terms of what we're talking about here? If the cold person is someone who really is not looking for Jesus Christ, for anything spiritual at the core of their being, what does a hot person look like? On fire, bubbling over with life, passionate, yeah. A hot person is zealous and burns with conviction. And like the cold person, he or she has no patience for pretense or lip service. That's what's the same. 
about people who are hot or cold. They don't play the game. They kind of declare what they're all about. The hot person doesn't just talk the talk. He or she walks the walk. He seeks God wholeheartedly and obeys Jesus' commands, even at personal cost. Jesus is first, and everything that distracts from that loyalty needs to be set aside. That kind of is described what a person who is hot. By contrast to the person who is cold and the person who is hot, the lukewarm person's confession never really matches her lifestyle or his lifestyle. It's hard to pin them down. Their words become a substitute for obedience. She finds safely in pretense and lip service. The reason Jesus would rather have us cold than lukewarm is because the spiritually lukewarm are no closer to him than those with cold hearts, but they have convinced themselves that they're just fine because they're going to church and they're saying the words and they're doing the thing. The lukewarm are not defined by devotion for Christ, but have redefined Christianity to fit their preferences and lifestyles. Being lukewarm allows people the questionable luxury of thinking they have it all together spiritually and yet still be free to kind of fit in with the values and priorities of the age. You can kind of have it both ways. They worship Jesus with their lips, as the scripture says, but their hearts are far from him. And this is why Jesus is so concerned. And by the way, Jesus has some very stiff words for this church. But I really want you to understand that behind those stiff words is a heart of love that tremendously cares for this congregation and the people who comprise it. He is only exercising tough love here because he dearly loves this church and has laid down his life for it. So it seems that this church in Laodicea, in their abundance, had become kind of spiritually complacent. They had learned to compromise and sort of go with the cultural flow. It was a church that had become a little squeamish about denying itself, taking up its cross, and following Jesus without reservation. Here, the spirit of the surrounding culture had kind of crept into the congregation, and it was paralyzing their spiritual life. But there's no place for bland, unenthusiastic religiosity in the life of living a fully devoted commitment uh, to Jesus Christ. William Barclay, in fact, um, uh, declared that a lukewarm Christian is a contradiction in terms. Like those two words just don't belong together. If they're lukewarm, they're not a Christian. If they're a Christian, they're not lukewarm. Those things just don't belong together. So this church had become blind to just how spiritually poverty-stricken they had become. They appeared just great on the outside, but they were on spiritual life support on the inside. And without a desire and a genuine longing after God, Genuine spirituality begins to wane, and this particular passage says that even has the potential to die. Lukewarm religion misses out on the vitality of Christian life and the adventure of following Jesus into the world to do God's will. And so a lukewarm church is useless to Christ because they are complacent, self-satisfied, and indifferent to the real issues of faith and discipleship. And so when Jesus kind of talks to this church, he talks to them with love, but it's with a tough love mindset that he speaks to them. He wants them to kind of understand exactly what their situation is because it's absolutely critical they understand that so that they can follow through on the next part of what he has to say in his letter to, um, in his letter to them. Okay? John.
to forgive them so they know not what they do? Would those people be lukewarm or would they be dedicated and learn to well, I don't think he had necessarily the church at Laodicea on his mind right at that particular point, <laughs> okay? Um, but basically, that's more of an example of the tremendous forgiving heart of Jesus Christ, that even though he holds us accountable for um, the life that we live um, here and now, uh, his forgiveness is extended even to the least deserving, uh, if they will kind of repent and turn around and make him the center of their life. Um, so I don't think he's really not thinking about lukewarmness at that particular juncture. I think he's got something else on his mind there. You know. uh, but there's a but. Good news, there's a but. Okay? Everybody's very sober-faced as we kind of move along this. And this is actually a sobering message, so that's totally appropriate. But there's a but. There's a but. We learned that Jesus Christ had not given up on this congregation. Although they seemed to have given up on him, he had not given up on them. He had bigger plans for them. He had a brighter future in mind for them. And he was calling them from where they were into this future that he had envisioned for this particular congregation. And so he calls them to repentance. And what does repentance mean? Just again, I mean, this is a, you know, isn't this a typical Sunday school question? But we really need to make sure we get this straight. When we're talking about repentance, what are we talking about? A turnaround. Make a 180 degree turnaround and go in the other direction? Sometimes people think that being repentant is feeling bad about what you've done wrong. No, that's not what repentance is. Repentance is a decision you make to turn away from the direction that you were going in and to follow in Jesus' directions. It's a decision to put aside all of those things that were sort of your idols in your life without Christ and embrace Jesus Christ as the center of your life. So repentance is a decision that you make. It's not an accident, it's not a feeling, it's a decision that you make. When you repent, you make some life-changing decisions to move in another direction. And that's what Jesus is calling the church in Laodicea to do. And so here is, Jesus' spiritual advice for this congregation. He says, I counsel you, here's my recommendation, buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And if you'll allow me, buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And buy from me salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I've often sort of, you know, um, thought of this particular phrase at the end of this passage, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I've always tended to think of it in which way? Normally, when we think of that picture of Jesus knocking at the door, who do we usually think of? Who's he appealing to in our minds? The unsaved. But in view of what's going on here in the book of Revelation, who is he really appealing to? He's appealing to the church. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door of knock. That's what he's saying to the church in Laodicea. So if you will kind of let me in, we will have fellowship. And so he's giving them an opportunity to repent to walk over to the door and open it up so Jesus again can enter in and be Lord in that uh, particular congregation. 
So here are some of the remedies that Christ recommends that interestingly correspond exactly to the self-deceptions of the Laodiceans. And as Jesus so often does, he picks up on their common experience to kind of pack spiritual truth on the back of what they already know. So he says, I counsel you to buy from me. He uses the language of commerce that filled their city. Jesus offers to supply them spiritually with everything they need. This is the true wealth that stands the test of a time and eternity. They were thinking, we've got everything we need. And Jesus was saying, no, actually you don't. What you really need is what I can provide. And so he asked them to make some decisions. He says, rather than sort of, you know, getting all excited about worldly wealth, buy gold from me that's been refined in the fire. It's better, so it goes in the blank, better than their Laodicean gold. Gold refined in the fire is an act of faith that can stand up to the test of adversity and opposition. Faith is not a gimmick to manipulate God into giving us what we want. It's rather an intimate trust and a dependence on God in the face of every circumstance. Fire-refined faith takes us through the loss of loved ones and unemployment and persecution and whatever else you want to add to the list with a confidence and a hope that sustains us in adversity and trial. This kind of faith takes comfort in God's presence in every storm. What Jesus Christ has done in giving us life now and life forever, that's true riches. That is gold refined in the fire. That is something, oh, everybody's going to groan when I say that. That's something that you can take to the bank. Okay, I'm sorry. But it's so appropriate, you know, for Laodicea. So gold refined in the fire is an act of faith that can stand up to the test of adversity and opposition. It wasn't their physical wealth that really mattered for time and eternity. It was their spiritual wealth. Are they rich towards God? That was the key situation. And so Jesus says, come back to this devotion to me. Buy riches that belong to knowing me. And then finally, he or secondly, he says, uh, buy white clothes that are purer, that's what goes in the blank, than their Laodicean wool. Um, the Christians in Laodicea knew one thing, and that is they knew how to dress for success. <laughs> Uh, they know how to look the part and to put their best religious foot forward, but Jesus' robe of righteousness didn't seem to be hanging in too many closets. Hypocrisy eventually will be exposed and seen for what it is. And the clothes Jesus offers cover our spiritual nakedness and make us fit to live genuinely as his followers. It's in these clothes that we grow to look ever more like Jesus himself. And so, you know, Jesus, again, builds on their common experience. He talks about the textile industry, and he says, you know about textiles, you've got this big wool operation going on in your city, but it's not sweaters made out of this wool that is going to uh, be important. It is Christ's robe of righteousness. Buy for me white robes and have those put on. Adorn yourself with those. Those have an impact for here and for eternity. And then finally he says, buy from me salve to put on your eyes, that is more effective, more effective than their Laodicean salve. Now, there's nothing like being able to improve your sight. Um, and that serves you for the here and now. But Jesus is looking much more long-term. He's not just looking at the here and now. He's looking uh, at the long-term. And he's also looking not just at the surface, but he's looking at the inward person. We tend to look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. The reality is that the Laodiceans had lost the capacity for spiritual discernment. 
Unlike the faithful and true witness, they were not seeing things for what they were. They were oblivious to their own spiritual condition, and they didn't realize how desperate their need was. They just sort of didn't get it. They could not see their own wretched spiritual state, so there was no motivation to do anything about it. That's the danger. When you think you're just fine, you're not really motivated to take any uh, remedial steps. So Jesus tries to open their eyes, give them spiritual discernment, not only to the truth of their condition, but also to the truth of his life-saving remedy. He wants to see them both. He wants to see the issue and what he has done to solve that issue. And so Jesus wants him to see with true spiritual discernment. And so he says, okay, listen, you guys, you're into wealth, you're into clothes, you're into this you know, uh, medical remedy. I'll tell you, there's something more important than these things. Gold refined in the fire. White clothes, Jesus' clothes, uh, robe of righteousness. Salve that allow you to have spiritual discernment. He says, I want to call you up to think about these things. And then he says this, those whom I love and rebuke and discipline, uh, those who I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's a very important line in this particular letter to this church because it tells us something about Jesus' motivation. Um, you know, if you're a parent, you might be able to get this just a little bit. There are times when we discipline and rebuke our children, not because, you know, uh, we're trying to do a power play or it's inconvenient, but because we can kind of see where their current decision-making is going to take them, and we want to, you know, uh, coach them to a better future than that. And so in order for them to understand what is right and what is wrong and what is appropriate and what is not, what is life-giving and what is life-taking, we sometimes rebuke and discipline. We want them to come to an understanding of the truth and to make the proper decisions. It's a sign of Christ's love that he calls his followers out when they got off track. Uh, I've said this before, I think, in this class, that the fact that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin is not a bad thing. It's an incredible gift. It's an expression of God's love. He does not want to see us drive our car over the embankment. He wants to keep us on the center of the road. And so he will give us a tap on the shoulder when we're moving in the wrong direction. He rebukes and disciplines because he cares for us and he wants the very best for us. He's not prepared to let his people wallow in mediocrity and complacency. That's not what he died for. That's not abundant life that he died to give people. That's not peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not joy unspeakable and full of glory. Everything that he had mind for them, they were missing out on, and he didn't want them to miss out on everything he died to provide for them. Sometimes, tough love is the only love that breaks up the heart's hard ground. And so Jesus seeks to shatter the Laodiceans illusion and call them to repentance. And so he issues them the invitation. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is present for this church. That's what goes in the blank. But he's being kept on the outside. He's not being let in to the center of their devotion in their life. The church in Laodicea had a pressing choice to make, and Jesus was trying to make sure they understood that. They could continue on in lukewarm, self-satisfied religiosity, or they could turn around, repent, and renew their loyalty and devotion to Jesus Christ. And Jesus was inviting them to take his hand and to walk with him. They could warm up to Jesus or carry on in their lukewarm condition and be spewed out of his mouth. There's a couple of places in scriptures that some of the hard sayings of Jesus, you know, Lord, didn't we uh, cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do all these wonderful things? And Jesus says, I'm sorry, I didn't know you. Depart from me. Um, Jesus 
looks at the heart of things. He sees things as they really are. They could embrace authentic faith and wholehearted devotion, or they could continue on in a lifestyle that was little more than a parody of Jesus Christ died to provide for them. And so he calls them to make a decision. He says it's not too late to track off in another direction. It's not too late to kind of come to your senses and gather the insight you need to really live the life that I've called you to live and be the people that I've called you to be. It's not too late. Open the door and let me in. And I will suck with you and you with me. And so he says there's going to be a reward if you follow through and you accept this invitation. Uh, things can be turned around. And if they are, this is what Jesus promises. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Uh, two things he mentions here. Number one, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Now, I don't think it's necessarily to be taken literally. I can just imagine just all of us in this room sitting on the same throne with Jesus. It'd have to be a really, really big throne. Um, uh, but he's a, declaring that they're sharing in his royalty, that goes in the blank, and being designated his authority. They will share in the honor of his exalted position. That's really the point that Jesus is trying to make. Uh, you know, to the one who is victorious, the one who opens the door, lets Jesus in, that takes Jesus' hand, whose heart is set on fire again with a love and a devotion for Jesus Christ, I'm going to give those people the right to sit with me on my throne. They're going to share my exalted position. And then secondly, he says, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And John's Trinitarian view is evidence in these two verses. The Father is on the throne, the Son is on a throne, and yet, speaking, they are called to listen to what the Spirit has to say. And so we've kind of walked together for seven weeks through the real-life situations of these seven churches in Asia Minor. And we've seen some of the challenges that they've faced and some of the good things that they've um, uh, accomplished. We've seen how dearly Jesus loves every single congregation and how desperately he reaches out that they would follow him, be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so what do we learn from the churches? Well, there are three problems that have plagued churches from the time that John wrote to this very day. And here are three big challenges, at least these three, that are things that we have to be attentive to today. Number one, assimilation. That whole business of being in without being of the world. Um, you know, I think Paul maybe puts it as well as anyone, don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is always pressure from the culture to simply fit in, to buy into its values and go with its way of living. And so assimilation is always a danger to the church, and it's wholehearted devotion to Jesus that keeps us from getting off track and helping us stay true. It's important for us to know whose we are, we belong to Jesus Christ, and who we are. We're the people of God in this world. And so, yes, our mission is in this world. When Jesus uh, ascended to be with the Father, before he went, he prayed, Lord, I don't pray that you will take my disciples out of the world, because this is where we're supposed to be doing a work for him. But I do pray that you would keep them from the evil one, protect them from the evil one. And so this world is 
where we're to live out this life in Jesus Christ and make a difference for his name and to complete his mission. But we need to be careful that we simply don't buy in to the pressure of the surrounding culture. There are times we have to make decisions that are, um, enable us to be true to Jesus. Uh, I always uh, am reminded when I think of this, I'm thinking of Daniel in the Old Testament when they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And sometimes from our point of view, all of these years later, we sometimes sort of figure out, well, what was the, with the food thing? Like, that's sort of a quirky thing, you know, to draw a line in the sand over food. Not if you're a Jewish person, it's not. Because, of course, if you were a Jew, there were all kinds of dietary considerations that you, you had to keep in mind. And basically what Daniel was saying is, there are certain things that I can do to kind of serve this culture and be a blessing to Babylon, but there are some things I will not compromise, and I will not compromise my devotion to Jehovah. And so the food thing was where he drew a line in the sand. The prayer thing is where he drew a line in the sand. He said, I will not compromise these no matter what. I will not be assimilated and become a Babylonian. I am still um, a child of Jehovah. So that was how he made the decision. Number two, complacency. Becoming fans, but not followers of Jesus. Um, uh, uh, Idleman has written a book called uh, Fans or Followers that's really quite penetrating and quite insightful. Uh, think about this for a second. You know what a fan is. Fan, uh, fans are those people that you see around Vancouver jumping off the bandwagon right now. You can see fans jumping off the bandwagon kind of all over the city. Fans are people who are really impressed by someone and uh, they like the celebrity aspect, but they're not really followers. They haven't made the tough decisions to say yes to Jesus in order to um, say no to some of the other things that are drawing them away from true devotion. And so complacency is settling for being a fan but not a follower. We want to do more than just be fans of Jesus. We don't think that he's just a great moral teacher. He is our living Lord. He walks with us and talks with us along life's narrow way, amen? We don't want to become complacent. And number three, persecution. Persecution is painful, but it can be productive because persecution has always served the church in kind of, you know, uh, burning away the dross and allowing the true to come to the surface. Uh, persecution, sometimes or another, you start thinking about what really matters and what am I not prepared to compromise on? What can I let go in order to stay true to Jesus? Sometimes when you're facing a challenge, you really kind of get focused on what it is that you really truly believe. And so these are the three challenges that they faced in John's day, we face them in our day, and what Jesus has to say to the churches helped them and helps us across the years to be true to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Assimilation, complacency, and persecution, uh, we can grow and thrive even in the midst of those things. <laughs>